My name is Jonah. I am the pastor here at Zhao MKU Church. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And uh, I am so excited for this, our last week of our ser- series, Lies I Learned in Church. Today, as some of you know, we are tackling um, the idea of hell. The lie that we are trying to dismantle is the one that a lot of us have internalized or been told. I'm going to hell. And it's been weaponized, used against us in so many ways. And ultimately, that is a lie that hurts us, hurts our world, hurts our relationship with God and our ability to be fully alive. H referenced it in their testimony a little bit, but the word zao is a Greek word. It's from the Bible, and it means to be among the living. We seek to be a community of life here at Zao. And that lie, I'm going to hell, that's a lie of death. It's a lie that's really embedded in our culture, and it's become common parlance. How many of you have probably in your lifetime said the words, oh, I'm going to hell? Yeah, me too. Me too. It's something that we talk about, and it's something that we are all kind of like low-key afraid of all the time. And uh, I actually, too, was thinking of billboards this morning. Uh, They're usually in Indiana, but uh, (laughs) that that insidious question, uh, do you know where you're going to go? Now, when I'm driving on the highway, I'm like, yes, I know where I'm going to go. Waze has me covered. (laughs) But that's not what that billboard is asking, is it? It's a really awful question, one that's designed to instantly make you feel uneasy, to make you say, oh, I know where I'm going to go, or I don't know where I'm going to go. Even the people who think, oh, I'm going to heaven, I got this on lock, that question is designed to have a little twinge of, are you sure? And it's gross. It's gross. It's not a very grace-filled question when posed that way. And this crops up in all of these different kinds of spaces. When I was growing up, I listened to, um, I'm trying not to be ashamed of it, a lot of Christian rock, ska, and swing. There's a song that gets stuck in my head every time I talk about this topic. Uh, And it's by a, a band called Audio Adrenaline. Now, Audio Adrenaline had lots of, like, good, awesome rock songs, and, like, there was stuff, uh, my, there was, like, songs about cars and the radio and being rad. And, then, and so I was like, yeah, y'all are on the level. But then there's this one song where the words are, do you know where you're going to go? It's got a little swing beat. Do you know where you're going to go? Do you know where you're going to go straight to heaven or down the hole? And the the verses are these kind of like catchy, swingy, like no big deal, tongue-in-cheek things. A 747 fell out of heaven, crashed through the roof of a 7-Eleven. You're working on a Slurpee, things get hazy, reach for a Twinkie, now you're pushing up daisies. Do you know where you're going to go? Yikes! (laughs) I'm just trying to enjoy my my Slurpee, y'all. And not that it's bad to, to contemplate our mortality or to, to think about, you know, all of existence and, and the God's plan for all creation, but that question is not designed to make you connect to God's loving plan for reuniting all the, worth, all, all the beauty of creation in God's love and glory. That question is designed to make you wonder, am I good enough or will I be tortured for all of eternity? And that is not the question of a loving God or a loving church. 
When we think about hell culturally, we're actually drawing mostly from medieval horror literature. <laughs> um, there's a, a book called Inferno by a dude named Dante. Now, Dante was real creative. He's very systematic. He liked things to kind of line up just so. And so when he decided to picture hell, he, he built it. He built it out of his imagination with these layers and systems. And he, in his medieval mindset and culture, centered it around torture. There were nine circles of hell, and each circle was for a particular kind of sinner. There was this special category of torture for each person. We see this idea of hell permeating not only his culture, but, but into ours. Um, our frame of reference for hell is really, really shaped by this. And so the pictures that we have of little devils with pitchforks or um, people, you know, burning eternally in cauldrons or vats of oil, those kinds of things come primarily from Dante's Inferno, from this, this piece of literature that is, you know, it's like the medieval equivalent of a Stephen King novel. It's not from the Bible. It's Dante's own imagination of what would really suck, right? And he's a very imaginative guy. He came up with a lot of stuff that's very terrifying. But that's where our pictures of hell come from. Even the idea that hell is underground and heaven is above comes from this sort of weird medieval um, metaphysics. This idea that um, things like dirt and sin and impurities all were drawn down with like a kind of heaviness. Like medieval physics, guys. And then like... like um, uh, light and angelic qualities and goodness had like, a, had like a physical lightness to them and they would just sort of float up. And that was why heaven is up and earth or, and uh, hell is down below. So like even though we have, we do have some of that imagery in our scriptures, you know, Jesus ascended to heaven. But the idea that, that hell is like this down below, the core of the earth is actually what Dante has it as, that you just kind of get sucked down to the core of the earth. And that that's where the bad things are and good things are up above. That comes from literal medieval misunderstanding of physics and like the weight of things. So when we, when we start to examine this question of hell, we have to take a step back and say, where do our pictures of hell come from? For most of us, they come largely from Dante. Now, if we are from Norway, our idea of hell might be very different because there's a town in Norway called hell According to Wikipedia, hell currently has a grocery store, a gas station, a fast food shop, and a retirement home. It freezes over for about a third of the year. <laughs> but we, we don't draw from that, right? We draw from this, this picture of medieval torture. Now, when I look at that imagination of Dante's, I'm impressed. I am, I'm drawn in by his creativity and his ability to express human fear his ability to express even the way that we torture ourselves by our own failures, which is a really big part of that allegory. But it doesn't actually sound a whole lot like God to me. In fact, hell, as Dante describes it, sounds a lot like human beings to me. This is not an invention of God. This is an invention of humanity. There was a philosopher a while back, Jeremy Bentham, who talked about this idea of the panopticon. Now, the panopticon is a premise for how you control people. It was a prison. And the way the prison was designed was there was one big tower with guards just up in the tower and lights shining out. 
So you wouldn't be able to see the guards, you would know that they're there, but the lights would shine out, and the lights would shine on, and the, the jail, the prison, would be like in a circle around this tower, and all of the walls of the prison would be see-through on the inside, which means that you could stand at the tower and look into any cell. The panopticon means all-seeing. And the idea was, well, you wouldn't need that many guards to patrol that because you could just stand at the center and see all. Now, Bentham is proposing this and talking about it in the context of prison and surveillance and control. And what he says is that if you have people feel like they're being watched all the time, feel like they're being observed all the time by somebody up high who can come down and, and you know, bring punishment down on them, then eventually you don't need anyone in the tower at all because people will just believe it. Someone is up there and I'm going to get punished. That is a very human invention of control and manipulation. We do this with children. Anybody ever heard of the elf on the shelf? This idea that an elf of Santa Claus's sits on the shelf and observes whether you're good or bad and reports back to Santa so that you can get toys or not get toys? It's a human way of trying to control our children's behavior. We do this in our policing systems. In Chicago, and I believe Baltimore and DC, there are these boxes, these white boxes with blue lights up top. They're camera, they're like Chicago police surveillance boxes. And the idea is you see these boxes and you know you're being watched and you fear. Again, this is a human construct of control, is controlling people by fear. Have you ever felt controlled, watched, afraid? It feels awful. And what the proponents of Dante's hell are saying is that our God is not a God of salvation or a God of loving kindness, not a God of creative, grace-filled life, but a God who is constantly watching us, observing us, checking off marks until we hit too many and then we're doomed to hell. And that is not the God of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a human invention for control. Our loving God wouldn't do that. There are so many passages in the Bible about fear. And what the Bible says about fear is that it is driven out by the perfect love of God. When God sends messengers to human beings, usually in the form of angels in the scriptures, the first thing that they always say is, do not be afraid. Like if they had a central like, catchphrase, do not be afraid. Yo, what up? I'm from God. Don't be afraid. Hey, I'm going to see you later. Don't be afraid. That's the thing that they keep repeating, and it feels like maybe that's because it's important. Do not be afraid. That is not the kind of relationship that we are to have with the God who made us. We are not supposed to tremble at the thought of God, at least not because we think we're being punished. The trembling that we are supposed to have in front of our God is one of awe and gratitude. Have you ever felt so connected to something, so loved, so present in the moment that it made you just in awe? That is the fear That is the only kind of fear that the Bible ever describes as being the right way to fear God, is one of just awe and admiration of holy crap, right? 
That is what we are supposed to feel with God. Not this sense of, oh, don't look at me. Not this sense of, oh, shoot, did you see that? Not this sense of, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'll get it better next time, please don't hurt me. Which is the underlying feeling associated with a God who sits on a high tower, judges and condemns. Now, our God is a God of redemption. And whenever we talk about heaven and hell, we have to talk about life and death. But it's important for us to understand that the way that the scriptures talk about life and death is so fundamentally different from the ways that we do. Our scriptures talk about our God being a God of life and death, a God with power over life and death. In 1 Samuel it says, The Lord brings death and makes alive. God brings down the grace and raises up. And in, um, in, the cha- in the book of Jonah, in the Psalms, there's this phrase that gets repeated a couple of times, you saved me from the pit. And that the pit, that's shoal, that's, um, that's the Hebrew word in that passage. It's this idea of, of death um, and of passing away. So the scriptures do talk about it. But they're talking about it in a really, really different way. Moses in Deuteronomy 30 says to Israel, to God's people, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to God's voice and hold fast to God. For the Lord is your life. Now when Moses is telling God's people, choose life, not death, He's not saying, look both ways before you cross the road. We're not talking about literal death here. We're talking about a way of living. We're talking about that sense of zao, that sense of to be among the living, to be fully alive. There is a way of life and a way of death in this creation. And that death is destruction. Jesus talks about it in this same way. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. He says in in John chapter 10. He talks in John a lot about life, actually. Abundant life, eternal life. And we have taken that and put that that into our kind of Dante categories. And, you know, there's a a corollary with heaven, with angels, that also comes a little bit out of Dante's imagination, but also lots of medieval artists. And we think, oh, eternal life, eternal death, these are things that are other. These are things that are in these different spheres. But Jesus is talking about life here and now. Jesus says you can have life abundantly right now. You can have eternal life right now. Or you can have death right now. And again, he's not threatening to to kill people. He's talking about a way of being. These are choices we make, not sentences handed down by God who is judge. And I'll tell you right now, the way of the gospel actually involves lots of death. But it's not the way of death. It's not this this horrible separation. Jesus talks about his own death. Jesus talks about dying to the world. Jesus talks about this process that is death to life to death to life. This kind of ecosystem of change and transformation that says you must die to yourself in order to live in God. The way of life is actually this ecosystem of life and death. And I believe that the way of death is this kind of stasis, this separation, this opting out of transformation. 
The gospel is about being transformed through death into life over and over and over again. The way of death is to sit and rot. And again, we are talking about choices that we make and experiences that we live here and now. In the Bible, there is one particular idea that is translated into English as hell a lot. Uh, It's Gehenna. Jesus talks about Gehenna. There's like one other reference to Gehenna in the scripture, but the rest of them come from Jesus. And Gehenna actually means Valley of Hinnom. It's a real place. Gehenna, hell, is a real place just outside of Jerusalem. It's to the south and west of Jerusalem, and it is a landfill. Now, it's not just a landfill. It's like a real bummer landfill. It's the, the dump of all Jerusalem, and it's filled with trash and roadkill and the bodies of executed people who were killed by the state and didn't have family to claim them. There are wild animals that fight for scraps in that landfill, gnashing their teeth as they fight with one another. And the way that that trash gets consumed at all is through fire. So there is, outside of Jerusalem in Jesus' day, a real Gehenna, a real hell, a pit of fire and rotting and gnashing of teeth. And that is the hell that Jesus uses as a metaphor to understand the way of life and the way of death. Landfills naturally end up in stasis. My friend Tyler has influenced my thinking on this a lot. He's an eco-theologian theologian out of Minneapolis. And he said to me once that, that the landfill, Gehenna, hell, in Jesus' um, teachings, is the place where life and death stop being in relationship with each other. Things fester there, they get stuck, and ecologically it cannot ever become life again. It goes to the landfill to be, become solid, solidified in what exactly it is, which is dying and death, and it cannot or will not be transformed again into life. By contrast, he said, The gospel image is one of a compost pile. Things live, they die, and they become life again. The banana peel goes into the compost pile. It dies, it it decays, it is transformed, it becomes soil, it becomes then the substance through which new life is created. How many of you feel like you've been through that process in your own life ever? where something was, and then it started to die, and then it felt like shit. (laughs) And then out of that was fertile ground for new life to grow in you. That, that is the way of the gospel. That is the way of abundant life. That is transformation through the grace of God. That is life everlasting, the life that cannot die because as soon as it dies, it transforms into life. That is the life of the cross, which dies, is buried, and rises again. This is God's vision. This is God's vision for all of creation, and this is God's vision for you, that any time you encounter death, it is something that transforms you into life, into the promise, into renewal, But the way of death 
is stasis. The way of death is holding on to something, locking it down, sealing it away from oxygen, away from other compounds that could break it down, and having it just sit. It's the heaviness in your gut that you carry with you because it will not be transformed. It's those systems of the world that resist change, that continue to hurt as though they're separated from all of these processes of learning and growth and joy. I think of the prison system, actually, as a place that just removes, it just takes people out and says, here, sit. Separation from community, from love, from transformation, from change, just pulls people out of the ecosystem and says, you're not worthy for transformation. Addiction is another space I've seen in my own life as mirroring that Gehenna way of death. Just this sense of, of, of numbing, of saying, I can't make it. And so I'll put myself in a kind of stasis. I can't face it today. So I'll put myself in a kind of stasis, remove myself, separate myself. Loneliness, isolation, separation. These are experiences we have of death, of Gehenna, of hell. I'm pretty sure each of you has experienced your own little corner of hell here on earth. And it's awful. And that is not what God wants for you. And it is certainly not something God is threatening you with. It's something that God knows you have suffered in and longs to pull you out of. This is not God's vision. Our God invites us from death into life. Our God is not hovering over us saying, mess up too many times and I'll send you away. Our God is saying, I see you. I see you far away. I see you isolated. I see you withdrawn. I am here. My love transcends all of those things. I can turn your death into life. You do not have to remain in Gehenna, in hell, in the pits. You will be transformed as will all of creation. And it's really hard to believe that when we are stuck in our little corner of hell. It is so, so hard to believe. When I was an adolescent, one of the ways that I coped with things that I couldn't face, that I was not ready to transform, that felt too big, was to abuse heroin. And as an adolescent heroin addict, my problems just kept getting worse and worse because the feelings would well up inside of me and they felt so life-threatening, so like death, and I couldn't, I just couldn't. And I found that heroin was a way to just turn all of that down, just turn the dial down on all of it, to put myself in a kind of stasis. And the longer I did that, the longer I just stayed in a state of constant pain or numbness. Once, when I was at a really, really low point, I found myself in the depths of my pain, not in that stasis, not in that dialed down, but at the moment where I was about to break, in that pain, I cried out to God and I said, God, where are you? Which came as a shock to me because I didn't until that moment realize I believed in God. 
But I believed enough to be hurt. I believed enough to call out. I believed enough to say, where are you? I believed enough to pray. Now, I wouldn't have called it that, and I couldn't make sense of it. And a few minutes later, when I was actually high, I thought, oh, that's weird. But that gave me this glimmer of hope that there was some part of me in my own little pocket of hell, in my stasis, in my wheel, turning and turning and turning around the same thing, that some tiny ounce of God's love broke through enough for me to long for it, to cry out, and to say, where are you? To express that sense of isolation, that separation, and God's promise that nothing can separate us from the love of God broke through in an important and powerful way for me that day. Just in a glimmer. Just in saying, I'm here. Just in saying, you can yell at me. So in that moment, God began to drag me out of my own personal hell. And it was ugly. <laughs> And there were years involved in that. And it's something that I face all the time, every day, that glimpse of hell. But more and more, I also get glimpses of heaven, glimpses of perfection, feelings of true connection and closeness, a sense that God is with me, a, a sense of God's love and creativity, a sense that I can be made whole and I am being made whole. And this happens not just at an individual level, but throughout the whole of earth, the whole of creation. God is knitting us back together. And in those places where we feel torn apart, where we feel that there are parts of us that are isolated, where there are pieces of us that no one could love, God is breaking into each and every one of those spaces, each and every one of those pockets of hell, and pulling us back together, knitting us back together in love. Death is never the end with the God of Jesus Christ. God invites us from death into life, not as a threat or a punishment, but as a promise that no matter how alone you feel, no matter how real your hell on earth, that there is nothing that can forever separate you from the love of God, that your God will walk through the fires of hell for you, that your God will come to be with you, that you won't languish in torment forever, but that the God of love, which works good for all things, will someday transform even the most hellish, the most stuck, the most isolated parts of you and of all creation. Death will always be transformed into life, and nothing, not hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, not angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hell doesn't stand a chance. Will you pray with me? God of love, we pray that your truth will out. We pray that we as broken, fearful humans would stop using this threat of hell to control and manipulate one another. But God, that we would see hell for what it is, isolation, separation from your love, and that we would be bold in remembering your promise that nothing can truly ever separate us from your love.
that your love comes into all corners of our life and all corners of creation to redeem us, to transform us, that there is no deadline we will miss, that there is no amount of too wrong we can do, but God, that your love will capture us all, will transform us all, will allow each of us to be made new from death to life forever. Amen. I'm going to ask uh, for you to stand again, either in body or in spirit, as we, we continue to sing.